It's Thursday, February 14th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Once again, we have another spy in our midst. The Justice Department just unsealed an indictment against a former Air Force counterintelligence officer on espionage charges for allegedly revealing classified info to Iran. Eric Geller, cybersecurity reporter for Politico, joins us for more on Monica Witt, who defected to Iran and gave away some of our secrets. Next, since it's Valentine's Day, let's talk about love and the gamification of dating. It's all around us. Viral matchmaker shows to find love or apps that we use to endlessly swipe to find a date. But all this technology might actually be making it harder to meet the one. Jesse Lee, reporter for Axios, joins us to talk about how apps are the new norm in dating and how it affects us. Finally, we talk to Dr. Wendy Walsh, psychology professor and author who has a new podcast out called Mating Matters. In her new podcast, she uses the science of human behavior to talk about love and sex and how mating instincts control everything we do. Mating Matters is out now on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. There's actually one part where she talks about this idea of maybe I could defect to Russia and basically try to get out of the crosshairs of the U.S. government. Joining us now is Eric Geller, cybersecurity reporter for Politico. The Justice Department unsealed an indictment against a former Air Force counterintelligence officer on espionage charges, allegedly that she revealed classified information to Iran Monica Witt had defected to Iran in 2018, and they said that she also provided a code name and a mission of a secret Department of Defense program to intelligence officers in Iran. So what do we know about Monica Witt? Well, we don't know much. It's really interesting to read this indictment. She was a counterintelligence officer in the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, which means that she helps conduct investigations of the behavior of military personnel. So she's the Air Force counterpart to the Navy service NCIS, which, of course, is the inspiration for that TV show. So she she would investigate what was happening in the Air Force. And as part of that, obviously, because of her mission, she also needed to know a lot about classified activities. She served also in a counterintelligence role separate from the internal investigation. So she was doing work both within the Air Force and then also investigating behavior outside the Air Force. Somebody with the classification to read secret material, the knowledge of this particular program, the code name that this program was given, which is an identifier that lets people who know about it talk about it without actually saying what they're talking about. It's called a special access program. It's kind of one of the ways that the U.S. military and the intelligence community compartmentalize activities so that you can group them up in certain ways and separate them out from other things. It gives people the opportunity to talk about them while minimizing the secret information that they're sharing. She was a U.S. citizen. She was born and raised in Texas. She served in the Air Force from 1997 to 2008. And then after that, she was kind of a government contractor. She was deployed between 1999 and 2003 overseas to collect electronic intelligence. She had a lot of knowledge about the internal workings of what we were doing on our end. What happened? Where did the shift come from where she started working with Iran? We don't know a lot from the indictment about the motivation, but we do know there's actually one part where she talks about this idea of maybe I could defect to Russia and basically try to get out of the crosshairs of the U.S. government. It's fascinating to read these transcripts of her conversations. You don't often get this much detail about these kinds of activities. It's really kind of like a spy thriller in this PDF. And what you find is that she agreed to provide 
provide information to Iran. One of the pieces of information was the identity of a counterintelligence officer. It is made clear that this person was operating in a manner where if you know their name, that that poses significant risk to their safety. And then as we see later in this indictment, the information was used to target spear phishing messages, which are attempts to hack somebody by tricking them into clicking a link or downloading malware. And the, the Iranians here who were also charged, they used that information that she gave them to custom make these Facebook messages and these emails that they hoped would trick people. It's unclear if that actually succeeded in any of these cases, but you really get a sense of just how devastating it could be if somebody with access to this information just starts turning it over. With regards to the cyber hackers on Iran's side, how sophisticated is their hacking program compared to, let's say, China, Russia, North Korea? I mean, they're using some simple spear phishing tactics, but overall, how are their cyber hacking capabilities? Well, what's interesting about the indictment is that it, it only describes, in a very general sense, the actual malware that they plan to use when they could get onto their victims' computers. And it's a pretty standard description. You know, this malware could let them take screenshots, use the webcam remotely, log keystrokes, which is great for capturing people's passwords. That's fairly standard stuff. And you can buy toolkits that will do those things on the dark web. It is not indicative of extreme sophistication. That's standard issue hacking toolkit for a country that wants to do this in a professional way. Iran is generally considered to be not as sophisticated as Russia or as China when it comes to especially the more difficult to penetrate targets. So this would be classified U.S. government agencies, energy facilities. That being said, there have been some cyber attacks in recent years, especially in the Middle East, on energy facilities that have been linked to Iran. And so you can see that it really wants to kind of wield its regional power there. And cyber is one of the ways that it does that. It's definitely getting better. We do see more and more reports about Iranian hackers being indicted. Obviously, the the fact that they are using spear phishing shows that they recognize that this is a sophisticated technique, that if you put the time into it to make a fake profile, you could potentially trick somebody. I think it's worth pointing out that the evident failure here is not necessarily representative of how they would do if they were sending messages to other people. Their targets were obviously highly trained to spot these kinds of things. And you can imagine that if this same group of hackers tried to get into a bank or even a, a power plant, just the business systems, not the, the control control systems, they might have better luck because those people might not necessarily be trained to spot the kind of tricks that they were using here. Investigators have said that it seems the motive was ideological and she's still at large, presumably in Iran right now. That's right. And, and really what this points to is as much as we like to think about U.S. government spies and, and the people who help them being either extremely suave and competent, you know, the James Bond types, or, or really incompetent and kind of almost a parody of, a, of a, a U.S. government investigator, there are a lot of people who are just good at what they do, but not necessarily committed lock, stock and barrel to the mission that they sign up for either at the time or over time. People grow disillusioned. And it's definitely something that keeps people up at night inside the U.S. government because you just can't subject these people to polygraph tests every day to determine how they're thinking and feeling about the U.S. And eventually, this is what happens when you have people with this extraordinary capability and, and access who basically turn sour on their entire mission. Eric Geller, cybersecurity reporter with Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Thank you. Wow.
one sociologist we spoke to actually said that using these dating apps and dating today has actually become a form of work. It's not just fun. It's not just a game anymore because you have so much pressure to present this version of yourself that is as desirable as possible. Joining us now is Jesse Lee reporter for Axios. It's Valentine's Day. We're going to talk about the gamification of courtship and really how the game has changed with people finding love and getting into relationships. It's become a whole thing. You know, there's matchmaker shows. Everybody obviously knows Tinder and all sorts of other dating apps. You know, you keep swiping forever, even after people find a date or a romance or a love, people still go back to it just because they're addicted to it, I guess. But dating apps are now the new normal. It's everywhere. And increasingly, people are getting into relationships like that. Tell us a little bit about this. You guys at Axios did a, a deep dive on how dating has changed. The big picture is that the gamification of dating has become this global phenomenon. So it's not just in the U.S., it's in China, it's in South Africa, it's in Australia, it's in England, and so on. And when I was exploring the gamification of dating, I specifically looked um, at these two facets of society where dating is becoming gamified. So first in pop culture through reality dating shows, like you mentioned, different matchmaker shows like The Bachelor in the U.S. And then second, I explored the gamification of dating in tech and social media through dating apps. And so like you said, apps are definitely the new norm in dating, but the catch is that these endless choices on these dating apps can actually be overwhelming and might make it even more difficult for us to meet the one. With regards to the TV shows and uh, you know things mm -hmm. like The Bachelor and whatnot, people love to watch those things. There's high drama, high competitiveness. It is a huge, huge game. And then with regards to the apps, as you said, I just know that the swiping thing has become so ingrained in all sorts of other apps now. I mean, YouTube is starting a swiping feature so you can swipe videos so you can stay there forever watching videos. You know, that's just mm -hmm. how these things have evolved now. Millennials spend 10 hours a week on dating apps. And I think a lot of that can be attributed to the gamified nature. First of all, you know, the format is like a game where you essentially swipe yes or no on people's profiles. And so there is this psychological motivation to make a match, actually, because it sends these pleasurable signals to your brain. One professor actually told us that it's kind of like a drug. You can get this release over and over. And then there's also the design of the app where you have an endless number of options and that makes people want to continue swiping. There was a survey from Match where, you know, one in six singles said they actually feel addicted to the process of looking for a date. And there are also psychologists who have compared these apps to slot machines because all of these different gamified elements actually make us even more fixated on these apps. <laughs> One of the other problems with all of this uh, part of the game is to make yourself as desirable as possible. So this is the whole thing of making sure your profile is top-notch, great pictures, the whole nine, great taglines and, and profiles, wording and everything. But some of this stuff is also counterintuitive. Once you maybe you make a match, then you meet somebody, your hopes and expectations are so high, and then it could be very awkward when that other person doesn't meet those expectations. You build somebody up in your mind, and what if they're not that person in real life? One sociologist we spoke to actually said that using these dating apps and dating today has actually become a form of work. It's not just fun. It's not just a game anymore because you have so much pressure to present this version of yourself that is as desirable as possible. And so obviously, like you mentioned, this can lead to unmet expectations. And there are a lot of ways that people are trying to grapple with that. One of the most common ways, of course, is just asking your friends to help you add 
at it or look at your profile, sending screenshots of your different matches and getting your friends to help you fashion responses. But there's also this whole industry of services that has popped up that's trying to address that. And it's this industry of dating coaches, essentially. And I spoke to a lot of dating coaches and a lot of them are essentially 24-7 coaches around the world who will help you style your profile and will even go as far as helping you to craft sentence by sentence what you might say to another person that you match with. And I think there is this growing need for these kinds of dating coaches because people feel so uncertain and feel so lost in this world of dating apps that they actually need to seek outside counsel to help them with their dating profiles. There was an interesting notion uh, from somebody that you spoke to for Match.com, Helen Fisher, who's their chief scientific advisor, said there's this whole thing of fast sex and slow love, where because of the way the online dating culture has changed everything, people are hesitant to really make those commitments. Instead, they'll have that one night stand. A lot of them will have sex with somebody before their quote unquote actual first date. There's this whole thing of, hey, we're hanging out. Now we're friends with benefits. Then we're going to have our first date. It's really interesting, Helen Fisher's idea of fast sex, slow love. And yeah, she she definitely talks about how it's basically this phenomenon among millennial singles where they're more likely to go through these motions that are traditionally associated with a relationship before even actually defining the relationship. So like you said, they'll go on dates, have sex, all of that, and they won't even define whether they're a couple. Or, you know, once they're in a relationship, they'll move in together and do all these things together, but they won't even discuss marriage. But an interesting tidbit of analysis from her is she said that some people might view this as reckless behavior among millennials, but she actually sees this as caution. She kind of sees this as in this increasingly gamified sphere of dating, people are on their toes more than ever, and it causes this desire in millennials to want for everything to be right, to fall in the right place before they tie the knot. And so it's actually, it it could be seen as a good thing that millennials are more cautious about how they date more than ever. Jesse. Lee, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Men can pick up signals that a woman is fertile by the sound of her voice. Her voice gets a little higher and a little breathier, like when Marilyn Monroe sang Happy Birthday, Mr. President. Joining me now is Dr. Wendy Walsh. She's a psychology professor and author. She's host of the Dr. Wendy Wall Show on KFI AM 640 and host of the new podcast called Mating Matters. So it's Valentine's Day. I want to start off there really quick. The big question I have is why do people put so much pressure on Valentine's Day? I think when you're starting off early in a relationship, you always have to make some type of plan. Let's go have some fun. And then as you're further down in the relationship, it kind of starts to wane the enthusiasm for it. It's like, hey, let's just have dinner at home or something. So what's the pressure for I think couples get wise because this is a hallmark holiday, you know, and it's run by corporations all designed to sell things like flowers and chocolate and get restaurants business. And I think when couples are starting out, they sort of bow to the the corporate pressure. And as you get older and you've been together a long time, you're kind of like, what do we have to do something here? Let's talk about the new podcast. It seems pretty exciting. You've got a lot of stuff going on with it. You use science, personal interviews, pop culture, reveal how the mating strategy is the secret to evolutionary motivation for most human behavior. What does that mean? 
Anything we that. do, I can draw a straight line into how it increases somebody's reproductive opportunities. We're here to reproduce. We're wired to reproduce. So if you use an example of why traditionally do men try to accumulate resources, money, and keep it out of women's hands because it makes women need them and they can get access to more women. Back in our anthropological past, you know, a hunter could have brought home a squirrel to feed his family, the odd bird. But no, he joined a team and pulled back a huge woolly mammoth with tons of protein and no fridge to put it in and shared it with all the women so he could get access to more women or higher status women. This underlying thing basically drives everything we do, even though we think it does or not. Exactly. Uh, I think you mentioned something about we we kind of lose track of it because we're around humans all the time. Right. And you just don't realize it anymore. We can't see all the motivations. So the first episode of Mating Matters is called Hidden Eggs. And it's why we evolved to have concealed fertility, which means three days of a woman's month where men don't know if his sperm will actually impregnate her. And women often don't even know when their three days are. But men have evolved to pick up all kinds of cues. We have a clip from the podcast that's about fire sperm. You know, sperm are survivors. They can live in a woman's vagina for five days, waiting for the egg to arrive, or standing ready to encounter another man's fighter sperm. Those are the fastest swimmers. They're ejaculated first with the sole mission to kill any lingering men's sperm. So, who won? Which guy is actually the father? And that is the eternal question, that men really can never be sure, 100% sure, that they're the father. And that's how women win the mating game in some ways. Did you know that some anthropologists think that that's why men invented monogamy? Why? <laughs> because if so, he stayed close to her tail right. and kept other men from having access to her, then he'd be sure that her eggs he could Impregnate that those babies will be his exactly, and, and his bloodline lives on and, and the family continues to grow. Exactly. So we also have another clip here. This is all about pheromones and smells and, and, has, and sounds. And, <laughs> so men and can sounds, pick yeah. up signals that a woman is fertile by the sound of her voice. Her voice gets a little higher and a little breathier, like when Marilyn Monroe sang happy birthday, right. Mr. President. And these researchers, poor guys, had to spend a lot of time in strip clubs <laughs> to do this study. Exotic dancers who do not take the birth control pill, earn more money when they're ovulating. On average, they earn nearly $400 more per night when they're ovulating. But what are the men picking up on? Some say it's scent. Pheromones may signal fertility. But it could also be the conditions of an average strip club. Strip clubs tend to be loud. They tend to be dark. And strippers make the most money not on stage, but by doing private lap dances. And how do these ladies sell their lap dances? Well, in a noisy, dark club, there's only one way. They get real close and whisper in a customer's ear. Would you like a lap dance? Dude gets a double whammy of signals, both scent and vocal tones. And if she's ovulating, he apparently is willing to dig deeper into his pockets and pull out more money. So this is all how sex and mating instincts control us and make, yes, they make, do. Us, make us do different things, make us shell out that extra hundred bucks or whatever it is. Exactly. Bottom line, what are we learning from all of this? I mean, this is how these things control our lives. We might not realize it. Oscar, it frees us to have knowledge. Knowledge is freedom. 
And so understanding human behavior, understanding human mating strategy is like revealing the whole game board. It's not like love is just Cupid striking down or this mystery that people talk about, this chemistry. I'm like, what are you talking about? There's real science behind it. Biological science, sociological science, and psychological science. And this is what I talk about in Mating Matters. We're excited for the podcast. You can find it on iHeartRadio, wherever you get your podcasts. It's called Mating Matters with Dr. Wendy Walsh. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Oscar. Good to see you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>